0: Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 157, Painting the Unpaintable. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And we are here for the second of five episodes, plus a bonus episode that we are putting together in collaboration with the Council of American Jewish Museums that dovetails with their upcoming conference titled The Creative Challenge, Museums for the Next Generation. As they think about the future of American Jewish museums and how they might add or reinforce or even emphasize a forward-looking creative approach, we're excited to be able to explore a topic that we also think is extremely significant across the board in terms of the future of Jewish life, the topic of creativity, trying to use Judaism itself as the medium of our art. There are five interviews in this series, and the first three guests are going to appear on a panel with me at the Council of American Jewish Museums conference, where we'll be able to take our conversations on the podcast deeper and be able to have interaction between our guests, which we actually haven't ever done before. So we're excited about the new format. We're excited about a great collaboration with the Council of American Jewish Museums. And we're excited about a great series of guests that the Council of American Jewish Museums has helped us put together, including today's guest, Yishai Hussidman. Yishai Husidman is a painter born and raised in Mexico, now based in Los Angeles, California. His painting has not up till recently been what you would naturally think of as Jewish painting, if such a thing even exists, but his topics have not been Jewish topics, strictly speaking. And as we discuss in our conversation, his understanding of his own focus is that he's painting about the process of painting itself. Over the last few years, though, he has had a major exhibition called Prussian Blue, which explores the Holocaust. It's a challenge to talk about art that's exclusively visual in a medium that's exclusively audio, but we have put a lot of links on our website, www.judaismunbound.com, to Yishai Hussidman's work, the Prussian Blue exhibit, and also to his website, which contains photos of many of his paintings, if not all. But let me say a few words about this particular exhibition. The paintings in Prussian Blue have been called photographic-looking representations of interiors, exteriors, and landscapes of the concentration camps and of the Nazi death camps. There are no human beings in any of the paintings. They are paintings of buildings, for the most part. And the series is called Prussian Blue, because the main color of paint that's used is a paint color called Prussian Blue, which is chemically very similar to the residue that was left by the gases that were used in the Nazi death camps to put so many Jews to death. So, without further ado, we are excited to welcome Yeshai Chlossudman to Judaism Unbound. Yeshai, welcome. It's wonderful to have you. Good to be here. As a jumping off point, we wanted to start by talking about Prussian blue, painting scenes from the concentration camps. Using uh, paints that, in various ways, uh, symbolize elements of the chemicals used in the in the death camps, and and uh, it would be really wonderful if you could just describe it a little bit, and then also uh, sort of talk about some of your intentions in in the way you went about this particular project.
1: Yes, um, you use a word that uh, jumped at me in describing the project, which is uh, symbol, and how it is that I use elements that symbolize a relationship to the Holocaust in my painting. And this is precisely something that I've been trying to address very clearly. Uh, What is the sense of symbol and what is the sense of representation in a painting? Uh, This is an issue that I've been dealing with, uh, not only in this series of paintings, uh, which I started in 2010 and I finished in 2016, But it's uh, something that I've been dealing with uh, throughout my uh, development as a painter. In the case of the issue of Holocaust representation in art, there has been a long list of problems associated with that uh, desire. The Holocaust has been mostly addressed in uh, what uh, has been called the new media like, like uh, video art, photography, different sorts of documentation and interventions. When it comes to painting, it turns out that uh, paintings have not dealt with uh, addressing the Holocaust very much. For some reason uh, that I didn't think of until I encountered an exhibition of a very successful and famous uh, contemporary painter whose name is uh, Luke Toymans, And uh, it turned out that one of the very first uh, bodies of work which uh, triggered uh, Toymans' career was a set of paintings that dealt with the Holocaust uh, directly. I'm talking about paintings that were made in uh, 1989, 1990. And Luke Toymans' paintings were done uh, in a very quick way and kind of uh, sketchy manner as though the painter is either disinterested in engaging with the subject matter or simply giving up uh, from the start at engaging in some quote-unquote profound way. The curators of that show at that time Decided to explain the work on a, on, on a wall on the text for the public. And in a nutshell, the text said something like uh, the Holocaust cannot be represented, and therefore, Luke Tuyman's makes paintings that are ambiguous and uh, difficult to pin down as a sort of affirmation of the impossibility to represent the Holocaust. Now, this is an attitude that has become a sort of a standard practice in contemporary art. And it derives, I guess, from a Theodor Adorno's dictum that uh, doing poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. Uh, he recanted afterwards, but in any case, this sort of became kind of like a standard enlightened attitude about addressing the Holocaust in art. What artists have been expressing is how it is that the, the Holocaust cannot be represented and how art fails in its attempts of representation.
2: Can you tell us a little bit more about specifically how the idea of of blending this blue pigment from the gas chambers and and your exhibition came together?
1: I found a whole number of websites about the gas chambers which are mostly uh, so-called revisionists, that is to say Holocaust deniers. The arguments, within the arguments, uh, so-called arguments put forward by the uh, Holocaust denying uh, website, there was something that got my attention. Uh, there was, in the 1990s, some kind of controversy about the lack of Prussian blue residues in the ruins of the gas chambers in Birkenau. The, the argument goes as follows. It turns out that in some gas chambers, particularly in Majdanek, there are still, up until today, visible, very intense stains of blue in the walls of the gas chambers. Now, back then the in, in, in Majdanek, uh, the gas chambers may have been used as disinfection uh, chambers for which Zyklon B actually was the material uh, used for disinfection and the presence of these blue stains actually turns out to be the result of a chemical reaction between the cyanide in Zyklon B and iron in the walls of these particular uh, buildings. So we know that the the gassing chambers in Maidanet deployed these blue stains and yet in the ruins of uh, Birkenau there appear to be no blue stains. Uh, For the Holocaust denying crowd, this was interpreted as a proof that the ruins of the gas chambers in Birkenau was kind of a hoax This argument eventually caused a response by scientists and investigators uh, who went back to the ruins in Birkenau and found that yes, perhaps there were no longer uh, blue stains there, perhaps they were washed away with the rains. Uh, perhaps there were were no stains because the stains were produced by some random or, or difficult to understand condition that actually uh, produces the stains, but however, there were uh, plenty of residues of cyanide uh, discovered in the ruins uh, at Birkenau. I immediately realized that these uh, blue stains in the gas chambers could be something that I could make recourse of in my painting, not only because the blue stains are there, but beyond that because Under chemical analysis, the makeup of these stains, a compound called ferrocyanide, happens also to be the compound that forms the pigment which painters have been using for a few centuries and happens to be called Prussian blue. So this coincidence for me became absolutely uh, crystal clear, would allow me to generate set of paintings that not only avoided the issues of symbol in the paintings, but actually generated a real tangible relation between the events that took place in the gas chambers in the Second World War and my paintings.
2: I really am fascinated by the layers of issues that come up with, with this idea that it's somehow impossible to capture the Holocaust in painting, in art, and what fascinates me are a few things. One is that I feel like when I was first introduced to art, like even as like an elementary school student in school, one of the first things that was taught to me basically was that there's all sorts of things we can't communicate in words so effectively, so we have art, we have visual art, we have... uh, forms of theater, we have all sorts of different modalities whose express purpose is exactly to communicate and express that which is really hard to communicate and express with just words. So I, I it really resonated with me when I first learned when I was researching about your work for this episode, this that you were pushing back on that whole idea that we can't we can't capture the Holocaust in art. And I just wanted to I just wanted to really look more at that because as we're thinking about the creative process and of art in general, I guess to me, if visual art can't do something like this if if visual art can't serve an essential role of tackling some of the most challenging most painful subjects in our society, then I'm sort of faced with this question like then what? what's it for and also like does that mean we just actually can't engage much with the holocaust at all and for those of us who weren't alive when it was happening we just can never have any semblance of a of a real relationship to that tragedy um and the sense i get from your work is that the answer is to to really push back on that whole premise in the first place so i'd love to hear from you like what is the role that art can play in to to use one of our past guests Words to to like F the ineffable, to to make that which is hard to say apparent and express to the world?
1: Yes, that's a good question. And the question is what are we trying to get at when we address the Holocaust in art? It should be evident that we don't want to recreate the Holocaust. Second, it should also be clear that we don't want to uh, generate a prosthetic of the Holocaust, that is something that, quote unquote, feels like the Holocaust or like being in the Holocaust. That is not what art is for. Those of us who were not uh, alive when the Holocaust took place, and yet who are concerned about how this fact, how this historical fact is remembered in the future, should be concerned about how to do that, how to memorialize the Holocaust. Now, in the 1990s, especially with the establishment of the the Holocaust Museum in Washington, uh, with numerous museums of tolerance around the country and uh, and around the world, where the point of uh, going through the experience of going to these museums is to generate empathy. On the one hand, it is not difficult at all to have empathy for the victims of the Holocaust. And on the other hand, it is very difficult really to feel oneself in their place. From what I remember in the, the, I don't know if they still do that in Washington, when I visited uh, back in the day, one was issued, a sort of a fake passport one of the victims in the uh, at the time and one sort of followed the life and destiny of that victim as one goes through the museum with the idea that by personalizing the experience of the museum through one of the victims that relates to oneself as a visitor of the museum, one will generate, or the museum will generate a a direct empathy. I find all of that a little bit manipulative, but perhaps, uh, not only perhaps, surely there is a a point in doing that for the general public. Maybe the general public needs this sort of uh, uh, tricks, When it comes to painting, I don't think the issue is to generate these so-called prosthetic experiences. The issue is different. For our generation, I believe one of the problems is, is how to maintain the fact of the Holocaust tangible. And not only tangible in the way that a photograph makes the Holocaust tangible, a a period photograph, say. Art can recover other senses of tangibility that the photograph fails to capture, on the one hand. And on the other hand, the artwork, by being mediated via the subjectivity of the artist, the subjectivity of the artist itself becomes part of the entanglements, that complicate the experience of remembering the Holocaust, but in a way also amplifies without exaggeration. Now, movies, theater, literature, they have a purpose in generating narratives, either through fiction or through documents. But I think painting has certain potential that is not shared by other disciplines and this is a challenge that i wanted to take on
0: and i want to come back around to that uh, topic but i but sort of in a in a uh, in a little bit of a roundabout way which is to ask you about a concept that we've floated on our podcast over the years that we've called the chutzpah versus knowledge curve. You know, this idea that sometimes uh, somebody who's not an expert in something is actually uh, able to contribute something from outside of that particular field through an expertise that they have, but that requires a little bit of chutzpah in a good way. Uh, and, you know, I think about it a lot as, as a lawyer, you know I was trained as a lawyer and I never hear lawyers expressing any kind of in- intimidation about whether they can take a particular case you know they they lawyers are trained to believe that we have a particular way of looking at any given case, and you could just invite me to be your lawyer for any case, and I'll spend a week or two researching it. And you know, I might want to do more research over the time that the case takes. It generally takes a long time, but I will absolutely be ready to begin representing you next week if that's what I have to do because I feel incredibly confident in what I am offering here as a lawyer. Whereas when you talk to people about how they, uh, how they think about Judaism. You often hear this intimidation of well, only a rabbi can talk about that, or only a PhD in history should really talk about that, and who am I to take this on? And we've been trying to kind of uh, get get folks to to be more like lawyers and less like, uh, I guess, regular Jews in that sense. And... Not like lawyers in
2: every way. Not like lawyers in every way. <laughs> Not
0: in every way. So I, I I was particularly curious about about how you come into this because I think that in looking at the art that you had produced up until this point, I don't think folks would have generally called you a Jewish artist. So I'd love to understand how you sort of walked into this project and, and whether you had some of those concerns and, and how you addressed them.
1: Once I finished the, the series in 2016, it kind of dawned on me that, that if I had, as I said, if I had come across this issue uh, earlier on in my career i i don 't think I would have been able to do anything with it or to crack it in a way. My work up, up until two thousand and ten was directly engaged with issues pertaining to painting itself, the history of painting, the question of painting through modernity and modernism and uh, there's there's uh, some sort of haphazard set of coincidences that put me in one place and uh, confront me with a problem for which at that time I feel I was equipped to deal with and which for some reason nobody else had dealt, let alone answered for up until then. I sometimes feel as though somehow I was born to do this without knowing. Um, And of course, yes, the fact that I'm Jewish emphasizes and amplifies this coincidence. However, as a Jew, I don't have the prerogative or privilege of dealing with this in the way I do. I think any painter would have been able to do this had he or she come across uh, the set of circumstances the way I did. It just happened to be me. After that, of course, once I finished that series, I had to think what I'm gonna do next. And I'm working on a new series which actually doesn't address that issue at all. It goes back to issues almost ex- exclusively of the of painting and the history of painting. But perhaps something else will come up in time where my uh, heritage and my Jewishness become intermingled with my work as a painter.
2: I think that in certain senses, the ways that people relate to the Holocaust and how it's impossible to talk about it and really be accurate it's impossible to represent etc i think it actually resembles the way people relate to god like this whole so the idea that god can't be contained in any sort of human words in any sort of expression and lo and behold a variety of religious traditions and there's prohibitions on representing god in Painting or in sculpture, etc. And it's funny because I'm flashing back to a conversation we had a very long time ago on this show with with Ami Olavi, and he said, "I kid you not, um, it's one of my favorite episodes of our, of our pod of our podcast." He said, "If if he were there at the giving of the golden calf, at the, at the construction of the golden calf, when all of the Israelites built this idol, ultimately this this." version of God that was not God, he would have contributed money and he would have gladly done so. Because he said, what could be better than trying to distill, than trying to comprehend on some level, even if it's not perfect, what God is in... In a physical form, like that tangibility mattered to him, and I've been thinking about that conversation ever since. And so, I'm thinking about in liturgy. There's even there's like lines in liturgy about, oh, you can't compare God to anything, and God is in Kaddish. It says God is beyond every blessing and praise that we could ever say. But along with that, there's all sorts of things about what God is. (laughs) Um, So there's there's this there's even as it is said that God can't be captured, there seem to be all these attempts by rabbis and others to to figure out what God is and so I, I wanted to I wanted to sort of flip that back to you and a just I'm curious if you've if you've considered how how this exhibition you've done is not just about the Holocaust but maybe more generally can be applied to other elements of the world that we think somehow can't be represented and if it does reflect anything about, about some of these theological questions and the inability to represent that which is divine.
1: You mentioned in the Jewish tradition, the impossibility of representing God. And I would suggest this parallel in modernist painting that developed throughout the 20th century, whereby there was a widespread belief that, Painting cannot represent the world at all. There was this belief that painting fails to represent the world, that any representational painting is a lie, and therefore painting needs to be disengaged from the ambition of representing the world and become abstract. That a painting that is true to itself is a painting that doesn't represent anything at all except itself and that is something that yes i did want to I had wanted to address that prohibition in my painting from the beginning from when i started painting uh, and showing my work but also especially here as you say in relationship to the holocaust because the holocaust is something that is widely recognized as the limit something that is stands at the threshold of what can be represented and what cannot be represented. Painting the Holocaust is, or or addressing the Holocaust in painting generates all these questions and issues uh, that you suggested that I've been also talking about. But in the way I'm doing it, not only generates these issues, but actually attempts to give an answer to define this is what we can do while avoiding
0: things that we cannot do in relating to the Holocaust via painting. Before we go on to another topic, I just want to double down on what Lex said earlier, this comment that if this is the only thing that you ever do in the sort of explicitly Jewish realm, Dayenu, that it's such a major contribution. Not only the paintings that you've done and the the perspective that you've given on the Holocaust specifically, but, you know, I was just sort of thinking of a world in which everybody contributed one thing uh, to the future of Judaism, right? And, And in that sense, I mean, going back to the golden calf as a example, you know, there's the idea that everybody contributed a little bit of their own personal wealth and according to Aaron out pop this calf but i'm i'm really interested if this is our only opportunity to have the wisdom of your experience and in particular right of your focus on the medium of painting itself and all that you've learned and all that you've said in that realm and to sort of bring that wisdom to other topics that might be important in Judaism that you've thought of, whether they are specific topics or, as we're exploring here, the larger topic of creativity and what the creative impulse has to contribute to something that I think a lot of people see very much in a conservationist sort of mindset. You know, a lot of people think of Judaism as something that was created long ago, that our task is to do our best to conserve. And I think that's part of what leads to people's fear of making a contribution because they're afraid more of messing it up than of the failure to contribute something that makes it work for us going into the future.
1: Well, I would dispute uh, the notion of my wisdom here. <laughs> I'm just trying to do my best with whatever uh, tools I have at hand. Sounds wise. and. <laughs> And uh, when you see the paintings, I think it'll be evident that these paintings were done with a lot of effort. Um, every painting that I make in this series took months to be made and it has many layers of work. Now, to go back to the original question, it was meant for me to contribute to, the, uh, to Jewish culture being uh, engaged with a history, with a past, But that past is not static, because time keeps going forward. The Holocaust did not happen in biblical times. It happened 70 years ago. It happened to our grandparents. So the Holocaust is already not only part of a culture, it's a big, it's a huge part of our culture, even if it doesn't actually form integral part of the Jewish religious tradition, and especially in the diaspora, Jewishness is to a very large extent defined by one's relationship to this historical fact. So for the, whatever I'm doing, if it's contributing in any way, it's something that uh, ambitions to become part of a culture that is going to be received in the future in a way that keeps generating an effective, and in the case of uh, art and aesthetic response from viewers in the future, both Jewish and not. Being Jewish in the 21st century means engaging with with our past, looking to our future, understanding our present, this is not something uh, static that needs or or that defies any change or progress, but uh, it doesn't mean either that uh, we have to discard our past and and look for ways of being Jewish uh, disengaged from the history that brought us up to this point i mean this is something that it's kind of obvious to 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 anybody or to everybody i don't know if i'm contributing much to the conversation here
2: well i don't uh, i don't know if that's that obvious but um regardless sometimes sometimes ideas that are simple are often the best ones but um so one question that i'm always interested in with many of our guests especially those who are artists or others creating work for for people to see or people to listen to or people to somehow experience is like who are you doing it for um because of course with art there's i think for many people the idea that artists really should be doing work for them themselves expressing their own ideas their own expressions um and putting that out in the world and you know hopefully others will latch on to that because they feel similarly but do you have sort of particular kinds of folks in mind when you're creating your pieces? Or are you really just thinking about your own life or your own experiences, or in this case, your own relationship to the past in your work? And sort of as a corollary, there's lots of folks who listen to this who are in one way or another involved with starting up various Jewish projects. And so what would you say to folks who are doing that Um, who are looking to have their work speak to people, because that's something that you've been able to do through the art that you've put out there.
1: The artist is always in need of an audience. Uh, The idea of of the artist who works only and exclusively for him or herself, it's a bit of a cliche. It exists, and there's lots of, uh, or a good number of, very interesting artists who fit this mold. Uh, but when we're talking about people who participate in, in, the, in the art world at large, uh, artists need an audience. If the audience doesn't respond, there may be a problem with the audience or maybe there may be a problem with the artist. Uh, that's always... A, <laughs> a question that one needs to decide for oneself. Uh, Now, when it comes to alternative or or different Jewish communities, no matter how daring one proposal or another may be, that proposal needs to generate an audience, a community. If there is a community that's being generated, then that position, can be taken into account or become part of the conversation, but, not, but it's not that just any daring proposal becomes part of the conversation, ipso facto, just because it's daring. If there is an echo, then there is a, that is evidence of a certain need, and that needs, certainly needs to be addressed.
2: Before we go, um we're arcing towards the close of the episode i I so deeply appreciate all of the threads you've brought up about the Holocaust, about creativity more generally, about how it relates to Judaism um but I'd love to just b- back out a second and and get some of some of you um and so what I'd ask is basically um what brought you into a just sort of being an artist generally um but also what is it that led you, in addition to becoming an artist, to become someone who specifically was, was thinking about some of these meta issues, about what painting does, what painting is, and in, in this case, particularly how painting can have an impact on what we say and think about the Holocaust?
1: Well, I was born in Mexico City uh, from uh, families that came to Mexico from Eastern Europe. In the 1920s, fleeing the Russian Revolution and its effects. At the time, it was difficult or nearly impossible to immigrate legally to the U.S. And so a lot of Jews migrated to Mexico as a sort of stopover in the way to moving to the U.S. However, Mexico offered uh, opportunities that uh, were very fruitful for the people who decided to stay there. Uh, my education in Mexico was uh, a very traditional Jewish education without being religious, but still I went to uh, a Jewish school where we learned Hebrew, we learned uh, Jewish history. It's not a, it was not a religious school, but it was a Jewish school. Now how I became an artist, uh, I was taking art classes as a child. And it just happened that the the art teacher thought that I had particular talent in in drawing and painting. And this teacher took me to her own teacher, who happened to be a relatively important, uh, serious Mexican painter. And he saw what I do and decided to invite me to work with him in his studio. So from... When I was 10 years old, I was already working with a, a recognized painter, uh, learning the, the basics of drawing and oil painting. And I did stay in, in his studio in the afternoon, some couple of days a week, learning the basics of painting for a few years. Now, why did I become uh, the kind of painter that I, ended up becoming. It's another story also. My parents uh, supported me to come to the U.S. uh, to study at a a university. So I came to Los Angeles originally in in the early 80s to study art. And as I was enrolled then in a very progressive, a very avant-garde school, the, the California Institute of the Arts, for me as a painter became very hard to get a sense that I was that that the educational system there was supporting my development. The arguments being advanced in the school were basically that painting is irrelevant, that painting is dead. Uh, real artists have to do other things that engage more with the contemporary context in which we live. I graduated from Calarts and went uh, to New York and decided to enroll in an actually very traditional painting school. It was kind of like the complete opposite of what I had learned at Cal Arts, and yet uh, everything that was being taught at uh, the New York, Sto- uh, New, York, New York Studio School, in spite of being very serious, it was thought to be passé. I ended up doing two years of uh, philosophy at NYU uh, where I actually was able to study material that is never in art schools in any way uh, pertaining to aesthetics, pertaining to perception, so on and so forth. And that allowed me to construct for myself a different outlook as to how paintings function at the time in the 1980s, the, the standard response from painters was to let's just do whatever is the complete opposite to modernist art or modernist painting. That is, instead of being abstract, we're going to be figurative. Instead of being uh, very cerebral, we're going to be emotional. Uh, my attitude towards art has been somewhat intellectual. At the same time, I've been trying to emphasize the hand made quality of painting and what that involves and implicates as a way of expression, as a way of generating meaning um, that is somewhat parallel to the standard discourse one encounters generally uh, in the practice of contemporary artists.
2: Well, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. It's been a great one. And uh, we're really going to be wrestling with and thinking about a lot of the themes you brought up. So thank you. Thank you for the invitation. And thanks so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode, and we hope that you'll listen in to the rest of these episodes on museums and creativity and art and all the ways that they intertwine. We want to close out this one by encouraging you to be in touch with us, as we always do to close our episodes. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our Twitter feed at @JudaismUnbound. Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can always hit us up via email at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. The last request we like to make is that we really deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation you can make to support us. And you can do that at judaismunbound.com slash donate on either a monthly recurring basis or through a one-time gift. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.